0: Welcome back to my so called midlife podcast. I'm Jennifer and this is episode 151. Update. I'm good. I had kind of a weird moment or weird few days last week. So I kind of went back and forth as to whether or not to even mention this, but. I figured that I would, you know, not only to remind myself that I'm not crazy, but also maybe in the hope that someone will be listening who might find this comforting. (laughs) I don't think I'm alone here. So if there's anyone listening who has experienced something similar, maybe we can find comfort in the fact that. You know, we're not alone. So I've talked plenty on this podcast about, you know, my weight, my struggle with my weight, my lifelong <laughs> struggle with my weight. So, and I know that, you know, because it has been a lifelong struggle that I maybe am not very clear headed when it comes to my body, or you know how I see my body, so about a year ago, I got to that point again, you know that point that I swore I would never get to I don't even know how many times I've made that proclamation to myself, but it was I was over two hundred pounds i it was two o two to be exact. this was yeah, I think it was just a little over a year ago and at that point, you know once again, at the place where I said I would never be, I decided that I needed to make some real changes, you know permanent ones, not go on a diet but really focus on a healthier lifestyle you know make make small changes that I could incorporate and stick to because I'm getting older, and I just can't carry all that weight. You know, There's so many um, other health issues associated with being overweight. And the older you are, the greater risk you are at for those other health issues, you know, like high blood pressure and diabetes and e- even things like, you know, bad knees and bad back and all that stuff. So about a year ago, I decided, you know, I have to make this change. And I knew it had to be permanent changes because diets don't work. I have dieted most of my adult life and they have been just a temporary fix. So I've known for years all the things I needed to do in order to get to a place where I'm at a healthy weight. So instead of talking about it or thinking about it, I decided to actually do it. So about a year ago, I began to make those changes. I started really tracking what I was eating. I kept a food diary. I weighed my portions. I upped my protein and fiber intake. I drank more water. I started exercising. Nothing crazy. Just, you know, a few days a week. I'd either, you know, do like some form of wall Pilates, or I'd get on the treadmill, or if it was nice out, I'd take a walk outside. And over time, I started to see some small changes, you know, enough to keep me motivated. And it took me a long time. This is the longest it has ever taken me to lose weight. There's a lot of reasons why, a lot of things factoring into that, age, menopause, you know, you, you name it. So, it took me a long time. It took me about uh, maybe about eight months to lose about 20 pounds. So, when I went home at the end of July, at that time, I was a, around 182 pounds and I felt really good. I wasn't the skinniest I've ever been, but still, I was happy with the progress that I had made. But over the last two months, I've gotten lax, I've gotten lazy, I haven't been as stringent with tracking my food, I haven't been exercising as much as I was, and because of that, I was kind of avoiding the scale. So earlier this week, I was like, all right, just get on the scale. I did, and I was 186 pounds, four pounds more than I was at the end of July. And I was disgusted. I couldn't believe it. I was really angry with myself. And then once I knew the number, when I looked in the mirror, all I saw was like just fat. Just gross fat. It made me sick just to look at myself. And I got really down on myself. I was just, you know, beating myself up. I was so disappointed because I knew I had worked hard and I had ruined it. And that went on for a couple of days. And then I woke up one morning and I said, all right, that's it. Enough is enough. I, I knew what my measurements were back in July. And I knew that I needed to measure myself again because I needed a new starting point. Because clearly, my laziness had returned me to being a big fat slob again, and I needed a new starting point. So I got the measuring tape, and I took my measurements, and I saw that my measurements were exactly the same as they were in July. When I was feeling so good about myself that I actually took some selfies of myself in my workout outfit, because at that time... I felt really good. I felt really proud. And this is, you know, so so I take my measurements and they're the same. And this is proof to me of just how fucked up my mind is when it comes to my body. It's so distorted. Before I took the measurements, I had fully expected the numbers to be different. And they weren't. I mean, of course they weren't. It was four pounds. So the person I was seeing now is like just gross and fat and out of shape was literally the same size as the person I was so proud of that I took selfies of myself in my workout gear. And the weird thing is that when I took those selfies, I took them because I knew there would come a day when I was feeling bad about myself and I would want to remind myself that you are still the same person. The person in the picture is you. You're fine. You're okay. You're still on track. I just hope, I pray. That there will come a day when I don't obsess over my weight and my body. Or maybe I'll just get too old to care. And like I said, I hope telling this maybe helps someone. I know this sort of body dysmorphia, it's not uncommon. So if you need a reminder, you're still you. You are still the person that everyone in your life loves. You are still you. TV podcast recommendations. So I do have a new podcast and it is available on the podcast platforms, but it is also available on YouTube and that is where I choose to watch it. It's called Ghosts and Grit. It is hosted by Jack Osborne. And I told you last week how much I love him. So, you know, this should come as no surprise to anyone. I think at this point it's brand new and there is only one episode out so far. His first episode, his guest is Dr. Drew Pinsky. You probably already know Dr. Drew from his MTV shows. They had a really interesting conversation talking about everything from ghosts to addiction to COVID A lot. I think the episode is just over an hour long. And because they do talk about so many different things, um, you probably won't agree with everything they say. I mean, I I know I didn't, but it's good to listen to other points of view because it will do one of two things. It will either strengthen your thoughts and opinions on a particular topic, or it'll give you something to think about both of those are good things. For TV, I watched a uh, documentary on Max called You Were My First Boyfriend. It's the story of filmmakers, excuse me, (laughs) Cecilia Eldorando's adolescence. Now, I had no idea what this is going to be like. I had seen like a little preview, but it looked just kind of quirky. And I thought, "Eh, yeah, it's an hour. I'll watch it. I definitely wasn't expecting to cry as much as I did. El reenacts moments from her adolescence. At times it's funny, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's painful. In the end, I thought it would make me feel worse about my own adolescence, you know, bringing up memories I thought I had long buried. But instead, it reminded me that being a teenager is just hard. And for most people, there are at least a few moments that we would like to forget. This was really good. It is sweet. And her retelling of it feels honest and sincere. And I would recommend it. It's really good. And I finished season three of The Morning Show. Oh my gosh, are you guys watching this show? I think... I love this show, and I think this was the best season yet. And I'm not just saying that because Tig Notaro is in it. I mean, she was just a lovely bonus, as was John Hamm. It was really, really good. It ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger, so I checked. And there definitely will be a season four, although there's no release date from it. I think that probably has more to do with the strikes that have happened but now those strikes are over so hopefully they get season four you know season four filming soon this show is so good and you know i love this show and if i haven't already mentioned it jennifer aniston is so good in this show so good because unlike most of her other characters This one, Alex, she's not very likable. She's pretty selfish. Her motivations are often self-centered. But every once in a while, she'll do something where you can see she's still human. But really, 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 I mean, everybody on this show is great. But for me, she's the standout. So if you haven't watched it, watch The Morning Show. All three seasons right now are out and available on Apple TV. All right, now that you're all caught up on my week, let's get into this week's topic. We're back. So I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Strange and Unexplained, with Daisy Egan. And the episode that came out on November 9th was about tulpas, Tulpas are imaginary friends, but for adults. Now, before you think, what? Adults with imaginary friends? Weirdos. I did some research because the idea intrigued me. What I found was that the idea of an adult having an imaginary friend is not as weird or as uncommon as I thought. Many in the therapist world see it as helpful. Psychologists don't call them Tulpas because there's a bit of a paranormal association with that word. Instead, they call them ICs or imaginary companions. There was a study done at the University of Durham in the UK, published in the Frontiers of Psychology in 2019, that found that over 7% of the people surveyed said they had interacted with an IC as an adult. Now, that number rose to 13.8% among those who remembered having an IC as a child. And that got me to thinking about my imaginary friend that I had as a child. His name was Johnny Japan. I don't know where he came from, but I can still clearly see him. He was a little boy, about my age, four or five, with short, dark hair and a bowl cut, he was dressed in the style of the day corduroy pants, a checkered button down, little shoes, probably Buster Brown's because I always wanted Buster Brown's, but they were kind of expensive, so I put them on Johnny instead. Johnny was a big part of my childhood for a period of time, so much so that even all these years later, I've never forgotten about him. He was my imaginary friend, but I often referred to him as my boyfriend. In fact, I've mentioned one that one of my very good friends, you know, I've talked about him, I don't know how many times on this podcast, I've nicknamed him JJ, short for Johnny Japan, my imaginary boyfriend. As far as I can remember, of the four of us, myself and my sisters, I was the only one who had an imaginary friend. Now, sisters, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I wondered if that said anything about me. Most kids do imaginary play. They give their toys, voices and personalities, but only about one in four, coincidentally, create a separate, unseen by others, imaginary friend. What I found was kind of a mixed bag. There were positives, like studies that show that children who have imaginary friends grow up to be more imaginative adults, but there were also negatives. Other studies that showed that children create imaginary friends of necessity to quell the loneliness that they're feeling or because they've suffered some sort of trauma. If I had to guess, knowing a little bit about myself, I'd say my imaginary friend was born out of me trying to stand out a little. Show how different I was, you know, look at me, I'm not your average five-year-old, I'm the one with the friend no one else can see more attention seeking than a sign of a creative mind. According to one article I found on psychology today, imaginary friends are a normal and even beneficial part of childhood development. Psychologists say they help children cope with periods of adversity, transition, loneliness, as well as the stressors of everyday life. Recently, child psychologists have reported an increase in imaginary friends during the COVID pandemic. Is anyone surprised by this? I mean, it kind of makes perfect sense. If a child's not allowed to spend time with their actual friends, they'll just create one. It also speaks to the adaptability and coping skills of the child brain. A whole comic strip that ran for 10 years was based on a boy and his imaginary friend in the form of a stuffed tiger. Calvin and his best friend Hobbes. Hobbes seemed to take on the personality of a more mature, wise friend. Where Calvin was just your typical impulsive six-year-old, Hobbes has an awareness of consequences, you know, kind of like a wiser, older brother. Creator Bill Watterson once said that Hobbes, who was named after the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, offers Calvin different perspectives from which to view the world. And let's not forget Big Bird's imaginary friend, Snuffleupagus, whom I did not know was imaginary until I was well into adulthood. From what I can tell, if you're a child, and instead of saying, I have an imaginary friend, you call it a, quote, imaginary world, end quote, and create intricate stories based on it, that seems to be okay. That's acceptable. It's often considered a sign of high intelligence. In fact, the Bronte sisters, all of whom grew up to be very successful authors, created detailed fantasy kingdoms populated with various characters during their childhood and continued to engage with those creations well into adulthood. And who doesn't think of Harvey when they think of an adult having an imaginary friend? Although in that case, Elwood, played by James Stewart, was almost committed to a sanitarium by his sister Vera. Eventually, Vera sees that Elwood is actually happier than most people and assumes it's because of his constant comforting companion, Harvey. For kids with imaginary friends, they can take many forms. Sometimes, as with me, it's another child about their age. Sometimes it's an animal, but with human traits. They're able to talk and interact with them. Sometimes they're complete fantasy, an amalgamation of characteristics and traits like a flying fish or a dragon unicorn. Ask a child about their friend that only they can see, and the details provided are usually pretty vivid. They are as real to them as anyone else in the world. I could very clearly see and hear Johnny. He was totally separate from me. I can't really say I remember his personality traits, but I do remember having conversations with him. I knew he wasn't real and that he didn't exist outside of my head, but he felt as real as any other toy I played with. In another article also in Psychology Today, it said, surprisingly, invisible friends don't necessarily disappear when childhood ends. One study that examined the diaries of adolescents plus questionnaire data concluded that socially competent and creative adolescents were more likely to create an imaginary friend and that this type of friend was not a substitute for relationships in the real world. Adult fiction writers often talk about their characters taking on a life of their own, which may be a comparable process to a child's invisible friend. Unfortunately for me, Johnny did not stay with me into adolescence. I think I either let him go or was teased so much about him that I chased him away. I found another study. This one is based on interviews of middle school students at high risk for developing behavioral problems. And it found that having an imaginary companion was associated with better coping strategies, but lower social preferences with peers. However, at the, by the end of high school, those high-risk children who had had an imaginary companion in middle school showed better adjustment on multiple measures. For all of the various reasons I found that might explain why a child creates, you know, a friend that only they can see, the one common theme I found was that it is not a sign of a troubled child. There are, of course, those who create a companion to help them cope with stressful situations, but not always. And then there are some children that create someone to shift the blame when they do something wrong. You know, I didn't do it. It was Johnny. Now, I don't have a specific memory of doing this, but let's just say I wouldn't be surprised to find that I did. Imaginary friends can help children to cope with fears, explore ideas, or gain a sense of competence. What if you're a parent of a child who has an imaginary friend? First of all, I would have loved this. I would have totally bought in and encouraged this creative side of my child. Hell, I might have even conjured up an imaginary parent just to fill out the storyline, because that sounds like so much fun. (laughs) Experts say you should ask a lot of questions to find out more about this friend. You may learn something about your child's current interests, wishes, fears, or concerns. In another study, this one conducted at the University of Washington and the University of Oregon, published in Developmental Psychology in 2004, the researchers found that the imaginary friend stage often lasts longer than most of us expect, with as many as 31% of school-age kids having an imaginary friend. In fact, the percentage of school-age kids having an imaginary friend was greater than the percentage of preschoolers, which was only 26%, according to the study. The study also found that of the children with imaginary friends, about a quarter of them didn't tell their parents. And for the pre-school age children, more girls than boys had them. But even this evened out once they reached school age. Years ago, the common belief in the psychology world was that if a child had an imaginary companion, that it was problematic. That and was it maybe the healthiest thing for this child that it could possibly be harmful to their development. But nowadays, it's widely accepted as normal. Research published in Educational and Child Psychology in 2017 found that up to 60% of kids had imaginary friends and that these companionships served five distinct purposes for those children. They helped the children solve problems and manage emotions. They aided kids in an exploration of their ideals. They served as companions in the children's imaginative and fantasy play. They kept kids company when they were lonely. And they served as safe places for kids to explore different behaviors and roles. I have to admit that when I was doing the research for this week and thinking about my own imaginary friend, it felt really good. I don't have a ton of happy memories from when I was little. But of the ones I do, Johnny Japan is in a lot of them. And it reminded me of one of my favorite books, The Velveteen Rabbit, which is a story of a rabbit that wants to become real. The oldest toy in the box, a horse named Skin Horse, tells him that with time and magic, that it can happen. And he explains this by saying... Real isn't how you're made. It's the thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time. Not just to play with, but really loves you. And then you become real. So maybe Johnny, belonging to only me, loving only me, somehow made me feel more real. It might also explain why I've had that song that Jesse sings in Toy Story 2 playing in my head for a week. And if something brought you comfort as a child, why wouldn't you want to carry that into adulthood? How is that different from holding on to an old stuffed animal? Sure, some may see it as odd, but that's okay. It's not all that different from talking to yourself, and who hasn't done that i know as i get older i am doing it much more often i'm figuring out schedules working out solutions out loud with no one else but me an imaginary friend is nothing more than just a different part of yourself and there are many therapies throughout the world that actually encourage this talking to different parts of yourself as a way of healing from past trauma having an imaginary friend is only seen as odd because it's uncommon But who wants to be common anyway? All right, guys, I'm going to wrap up this week's episode. Thanks for coming back for episode 151. Don't forget, join the Facebook group and like the Facebook page, My So-Called Midlife Podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at My So-Called Midlife Podcast. If you like the podcast, tell your friends, even your imaginary ones. And then ask them to listen. If you have questions or topic suggestions, please email me at podcast at gmail.com. I have to make a note about that. So I recently found out like yesterday that my email address linked to my Spotify account where I create this podcast every week was wrong. So if anyone who is listening has emailed me and not gotten a response, I am so sorry. I did not know it was incorrect. It was going to some like what they called a ghost account that I did not have access to. So that has been fixed. So if you emailed me in the past, please email me again. If you'd like to email me now, at least I'll get it. And I promise I'll respond. Email again, my so-called midlife podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And just as a reminder, no new episode next week. It is Thanksgiving and I am taking the day off. But I'll be back with a new episode on Thursday, November 30th. Until then, love you. Bye.